Good morning. I'm Kelly Brown Douglas, and I want to thank you for joining me in another Just Conversation coming from the 80th General Convention of the Episcopal Church here in Baltimore City. This morning, I am speaking to Bishop Carol Gallagher, who spoke earlier this week to a resolution which was passed by the Episcopal Church, Resolution A-127, which calls on the Episcopal Church to create a fact-finding commission and complete an investigation of the church's ownership and operation of Episcopal-run indigenous boarding schools. Thank you, Bishop Gallagher, for joining me in this conversation this morning. I just want to say thank you, Dean Douglas. I appreciate being here. Great. Well, I want to jump right in and ask you about this resolution, its importance, and what difference it will make for our church and beyond, beyond simply being a resolution. Well, the, this um, resolution was proposed by several folks from the Diocese of Navajo Land who I have worked with and companioned through um, this process. And I happened to sit on the um, committee number nine, which is on racial justice. And so we've been looking at this for months now and talking about it. Um, what I shared in my testimony yesterday was that when I was an infant, um, I was born in California, but my dad was called to a congregation in New York. So we drove across country. Um, I was three or four months old. Um, and we stopped, my family stopped at Ganado. And this is a story that my older sister often repeats. Um, Ganado is in the Navajo reservation, um, in the Four Corners region of um, Utah, I don't want to miss anything. <laughs> Utah, Colorado, um, New Mexico, and Arizona. So those four corners. Right. And um, a huge and beautiful and important part of our church. Um, but anyway, we were visiting friends of my family at Ganado, and my mother was holding me, and all the little children came and wanted to sit on her lap as well and hold her and be next to her. And then what my sister tells me is then they wanted to pass around um, the baby. Um, and what's important to say is whether children survived or not, whether our indigenous folks survived or not in residential schools and in boarding schools, they were taken away from their families, oftentimes as young as three or four. And they might have never seen their families again. And they didn't get to see their mommies and daddies and their aunties and their um, the, all the elders of their community. They didn't get to hold their brothers and sisters. And um, I've often held that in my mind. My grandfather went to a boarding school. The effects of um, our complicity and our running of boarding schools and our funding, although the federal government, it was a federal program, but this is a one place in our history that very clearly there was no separation of church and state. It was a government policy to eradicate um, Native people as they were culturally in every other way and to get us to be part of America. Um, although this was our land and we have suffered great 
genocide and everything else. Um, and our people are thriving, but we're also suffering from the effects of that. And we need to do the work that it's going to call us as a church and as a people to do. Yes, I want to get you to speak just a little bit more before we dig more deeply into some of the things going on there at the convention in relationship to racial and ethnic justice. Speak a little bit more to these boarding schools and in that, you know, people think here boarding schools, well, boarding schools, that they were more, as you've just uh, stated briefly, more than that, and were indeed a place. I remember there were policies, spoken or unspoken, in our federal government in relationship to indigenous peoples, which was either assimilate or be exterminated. And, and, and so that these boarding schools were part of that process of assimilation. And while we've heard a lot about them and those, the tragedies that happen in Canada, speak to those boarding schools functioning here and what you see and know, uh, perhaps as the complicity, if not more than complicity, of our Episcopal Church uh, in uh, sustaining, supporting uh, those schools. Well, the federal government, just after the Civil War, um, policies were put into place, and I can't um, recite legislative numbers, but um, too many today already, but just general convention. But um, the policy was to, as you say, exterminate or assimilate. Um, the expectation of the federal government that we would have be, we would disappear by the beginning of the 20th century. That's right. Um, just absolute eradication. Um, so uh, Colonel Pratt, who was a um, colonel during the Civil War, um, was given the task. The first school that was set up was Carlisle Indian School. Um, and what's important for people to understand is these were not really educational facilities. Right. In some ways, they were work um labor facilities. So most of the children <clears throat> that went to the Indian schools, as they were called then, um, would maybe have two or three hours of education in the morning and then work out in the fields, um, milk cows. I mean, all of the things you can imagine in some farming. Others were taught basic um, industrial um, kinds of crafts and things. So most of our folks, even though they would go to boarding school, would not get the same education as their siblings throughout the rest of the world. I mean, throughout the rest of our country, and we're not really privileged to any sort of advanced education. Um, the children, both here and in Canada, were subject, I mean, the, all of our churches were um, basically the subcontractors for the federal government. Right. Right, right. And so um, there was also religious education, and many folks, um, you know, really took to the church in some ways, some shape or form. But now, generationally, the church is also indicted and, and held accountable for how poorly children were treated and how their culture and their identity was really dismantled intentionally. Um, friends of mine tell stories about going to 
And so people understand this isn't just ancient history. This is recent history. I mean, I have people who are my age and younger who went to boarding school. Boarding schools, the first step was to have your hair cut. And for many indigenous people, um, their hair is a symbol of their, it's just integral in their identity and right. cutting your hair and many people had their just head shaved um, because right. you know the intention was the dirty Indian had to be eradicated. So all of those things. And then there was massive reports of sexual abuse. Children, including Jim Thorpe, ran away from places like Carlisle time and time again. They say that a good deal of the children, those little, there are 300 plus crosses out. I mean, at least there's, you know, some graveyard at Carlisle where other places there didn't even have graveyards. Um, many of those children didn't die of something specifically. They basically um, suffered from failure to thrive. So, um, yeah, I'm sorry. So what this resolution will force us to begin to dig into our complicity as a church into this. And sometimes I say it's more than being complicit. But what difference, Bishop Gallagher, will this resolution make beyond the floor, beyond the Episcopal Church? Uh, what Will it move? We're famous for making resolutions. Some 400 and so were on the uh, before the convention this this year, and uh, but we leave Baltimore and we've made these resolutions, and we don't show up uh, in ways beyond that. So, what do you hope, or what difference is this resolution going to make that others haven't made when it really comes to responding to the trauma? Uh, the historical trauma uh, of uh, these boarding schools and other kind of racial injustices? Um, I think one of the most important parts of this, and it's, you know, um, indigenous leadership, Navajo leadership, and other leadership who are proposing this and supporting this. <clears throat> the first stage of this is an in-depth listening and hearing people's stories. The other part of it is um, going to the archives and looking how the church um, bought or took native land for some of these schools, but also how we as a church treated our indigenous people. Um, so we are following in somewhat what happened in Canada, which started 20 years ago or more, um, in you know, listening and coming to a place of honoring people's culture and identity and language. Um, many of the children were thrown together with 20 or 30 different tribes. None of them could speak English. Um, so being able to pull out those, those stories and to have people honestly listen to and then figure out what kind of reparations need to be done. Um, Bishop Sutton this morning preached about how important reparations are in repairing the breach. And so I don't know what the next steps are because as native people, we wanna sit with listening until we can 
embody and be moved as a community in consensus to what we're going to invite the church to do. Speaking of inviting the church uh, into some kind of action, both you and I sit on the Theological Commission for the House of Bishops, and we, of course, just put out a uh, report on uh, white supremacy, reparations, etc. Our country still is uh, in the midst of this a, a crisis, a moment, uh, if you will, where we are beginning to see the impact of uh, white Christian nationalism, uh, white supremacy upon uh, our democracy as a whole. And it's my understanding that this was a discussion that erupted, if you will, on the floor of the House of Bishops uh, yesterday, last night. Can you speak to that? And what do you hope comes out of this? You know, we're meeting uh, in the middle of a crisis, what I like to say, Cairo's time uh, in our church. And so, you know, it's time for prayer and listening. Those things are important. What's the next thing? What does it mean that that erupted on our floor? What do you hope happens? Well, Kelly, you may not want to hear this, but it's probably likely that the theology committee will be charged. <laughs> oh, no, I, I got something this morning that said that we are charged. I, 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 <laughs> yes. Um, we're going to have more work to do, but I think it can't stay just in the theology committee. Um, and one of the gifts of last night in the House of Bishops was the honest reflection by our presiding bishop, Michael, um, who I've been honored to be a um, long time. We actually met here in Baltimore um, when I was in the process. This is my home diocese. But Michael last night reflected on the reality of where we are as a country and as the divisions and that our democracy is in trouble and that not only do we want to speak to it but we want to find ways to engage and act on it he spoke of it as being almost um we are at the same place as we were at the civil rights movement we need to be about acting in terms of, with love, in terms of moving our church and our country to a different place. Right now, I'm stepping out while the, my brothers and sisters, siblings are having conversation at table about the questions that are being asked of, <clears throat> and out of that conversation, I think we will have some very specific questions and language for the theology community to wrestle with. But then there are also other people um, who are already in the process, the Diocese of Washington, the Diocese of Missouri, working with the Methodists on um, some programs that they've already um, put into place. So some of it is my prayer, my hope, is it's not just words and not just something more for us to write and then to read but for us to actually put it into action so that we're in communities on the streets with people um, standing in those places that the church rarely wants to stand, but that's where we're being called. 
Yeah, let me get you back to those conversations and out of here uh, with this question, Bishop Gallagher. What, what do you wanna see happen once the church leaves Baltimore, even as the church has been in Baltimore? What has been the biggest challenge from your perspective of what it means to be in a city like Baltimore? And uh, how, what would you like to see in the way in which being there shapes, reshapes our church? Now, as I, I have lived in Baltimore for, um, I added up the other day, 17 years in my life. My husband, 23 years. I mean, we both came to here to go to college, um, had two children here. I mean. This city is in my heart. Mm -hmm. And the saddest part for me right now is that because of the shortened convention, we don't have an opportunity to engage very much with the people involved. That's right. We're not doing any of those things like going to local churches and to hear the choir sing and to touch and interact. And I understand the need for those restrictions, but we're coming to Baltimore in a very sanitized, unrelational way. And, um, you know, I said to many people, I need to come back um, so that Baltimore can indwell me more. Um, mm. This is a city of incredible thriving despite incredible discrimination. But I, I, you know, I came up, I came into adulthood in this place. It was much more um, integrated than the place I serve now and pretty much everywhere else I've ever served. Um, this city has a lot to teach because it, it was always sort of in the shadow of DC. That's right. Um, you know, with the big mouths and the big attitudes and all that kind of stuff. This is a working class city with an edgy kind of gritty sense of we can do this. Um, and I wish that we had been able, people who come here would have been able to absorb more of that. But and people who are willing to work. And I'm hoping we go from here at least um, imbued with that sense of uh, tenacious hope that despite the, the scars and the you know difficulties we have, that we're willing to work for justice wherever we are and take that with us. That's a good place to end. And I think a good description as well of Baltimore, a place with tenacious hope. And you hope that our church takes that away and works Absolutely. toward justice. Thank you so much, Bishop Gallagher, for this conversation, for your work, and good luck as you continue that difficult work in the remaining days of the General Convention. Thank you. Thank you. Every blessing to you. And to you. For our second interview, I am speaking with Dee Watkins who is the editor-at-large at Salon and a New York Times best-selling author. I speak with Dee about growing up in Baltimore and some of the generational hardships that young people face growing up in urban areas such as Baltimore. We also talk about his new memoir, Black Boy Smile, which is a story of redemption and resilience and how he matured, if you will, into the Dee Watkins 
we know today. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dee Watkins as much as I enjoyed having it. So let me jump right in with the first question. As, as I've said to you, uh, Episcopalians are holding their national general convention in your city of Baltimore as we speak. Thousands of church leaders from the Episcopal denomination will be flooding in or flooding into Baltimore. So it's easy to come to Baltimore and not see Baltimore. It's, it's easy to go back and forth between the convention center and the hotels and in meetings and, and leave and not see Baltimore. And for me, Baltimore in so many ways reflects many things and inequities and injustices in America. And it certainly reflects uh, the issue of race in America. So Dee, what is the story that Baltimore tells that you would like the church to hear about race in America and hence in Baltimore? I would want the church to know that race is a made up thing. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not it's, it's it's not even real yet we've 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 brought into this idea uh we bought into this idea of race for for such a long time and allowed it to cast these systems that unfortunately um oppress people have been oppressing people from from generations and, and we're still dealing with that um so you know one thing i never do i never try to give you know, groups um, of people, the responsibility of, of swooping in and saving problems. Like it's not going to happen during the conference. It's not going to happen on a weekend. Um, I remember when I first started out years ago, um, I went to a college and they heard about some of the work I was doing inside the jail, um, teaching writing workshops and mm -hmm. um, helping people learn how to tell their stories for everybody. And they were so inspired that they created this D. Watkins Day of Service. And they had all these T-shirts printed up that said a day of service. And I said, you know, I'm honored that you guys made these shirts. Um, I don't need my name on a shirt. I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not that kind of person. But it kind of bothers me that um, that we're sending a message of a day of service as right. if we can solve a problem in a day. <laughs> These problems take a lifetime of commitment. Um, going back to your question about the idea of race, how we see black people um, in this country, this is, you know, um, hundreds of years of, of flawed information, of um, bad stereotypes, of harsh generalizations. They're not going to be undone in a conference or, you know, after somebody writes a pretty essay or delivers a powerful speech. It is a lifetime commitment. So the problems, um, the progress that they see in Baltimore, just know it's connected to decades and decades of work. The problems that they see, just know they're also the product of hundreds of years of um, of, of, of oppression and, and people trying to fight against that. So none of these things are simple. None of these things are quick takeaways. The solutions require a lifetime commitment. The problems um, were created by someone else's lifetime commitment. 
I I want to follow up on a couple of things uh, you said uh, there. And uh, one, and I like this notion of commitment and, and the church has to recognize uh, and claim a lifetime commitment. But I want to go back before I follow up on that uh, and something else that you said, that yes, race, and we know this reality of race as this kind of social construction and, and race as this really a construction and demarcation of power in this country uh, uh, and, and, and power and privilege. Even as it is that, and with all of the tropes and stereotypes that it carries that we know aren't reflective of the people that have been stereotyped and dehumanized and demonized, et cetera. It also plays itself out in real ways. If we're talking about uh, whiteness and the privileges of whiteness and white supremacy. And what are the ways in it, that it plays itself out uh, let's say in Baltimore, we know, you know, the realities of segregation, redlining, and all that. And but what's happening in terms of Baltimore public school systems, uh, poverty, et cetera? Can you speak? And this is the this is the Baltimore that people aren't even going to see. They'll they'll want to ignore the realities of uh, the way in which Baltimore, let's put it this way, has been raced. Um. So I think that the coolest or the easiest way for me to put it is um, what's, won't you tell me one subject in school you didn't like when you were coming up, when you were coming up? Like, was it was it geometry? Was it Shakespeare? What was something that bothered you? For, for me that I didn't like, uh, that's easy, that's math, cause I couldn't right. do it. <laughs> Right. Okay, so you have so so now you have this challenge, and you have to complete a certain amount. You have to accomplish certain things um, mathematically to be able to get to the next level. So you know, in, in Baltimore, there are kids who are fighting to be able to accomplish those things so that they can get to the next level of school. The only difference is in Baltimore, they have to do it inside of a building that doesn't have heat or AC. Right. So the content is already difficult. But then you add on the fact that the educational, the the, edu the the foundation of education might not exist in your family because it didn't exist, you know, because it just hasn't, for whatever reason, it's not there. On top of the fact, the teacher might not be prepared to deal with students who didn't, who don't come from a certain kind of background because they don't really understand what it's like to 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 grow up in poverty on top of <laughs> you have to do all of this while freezing your brains out you know while you can you they're talk you're talking and your lips are chapping in real time because this your, your classroom is an ice box um and that is where that is like the root and I'm I'm not saying it's just education but that is That's that right. is that is a huge part of, of of the foundation um directly connected to the problems that people may see or they might not see um so if you're in the city or if you're planning on visiting the city and you hear people talking about oh Baltimore has all of this crime well you know the people here we're not inherently criminals right we are we're just a part of a bigger failed system when I was growing up, I felt like I didn't have a stake in society. I felt like 
my my neighborhood was crumbling. Um, there was no place to get fresh and clean food. Police officers treated everyone who looked like me terribly. And then I would go to school where education was just almost like a joke, even to the people who worked there. All of these things add up to a mentality of a person who feels like they are set to inherit nothing. And when you feel like that, you act as such. So people who commit these wild crimes and you look at the news and say, wow, why would he run up in that place with a gun and do that? Why would she drive uh, the car off, off the showroom floor through the glass window? Like, why would people do these wild and extreme things? It's because they feel like there's nothing for them. And society does a great job at telling them and showing them that it's not. So um, you people are probably going to see a lot of things. They're going to see divestment in certain neighborhoods. They're going to see... Um, they're going to see beauty. They're going to see people who figured out ways to find beauty in the midst of it all. And then they're going to see people who are walking in line trying to figure out if they're going to go left or right. And what does that look like? But um, just know if it's anything negative, it's kind of connected to the same problems that have been around for a long time. People need hope. People need to know that if they if they work hard, then their hard work is going to pay off. <laughs> right now, a lot of people feel like they can work all day long and they get nothing for it. No, thank you for that. Yes. <laughs> uh, uh, and just that reality. I often, uh, the, as I think I shared with you, my son lives in Baltimore and he often says, so why would you go to school when you're going to freeze in the school? Uh, or or in, in the summertime when it gets hot? These schools aren't air conditioned. How do you expect somebody to learn? And, you know, and we know that it's hard to focus when we're hungry. So think about uh, kids who are coming hungry every day. Again, these are issues that, and, and I love the way you uh, emphasize people aren't criminals. We're, we're criminalizing them by uh, for, uh, trapping them in conditions uh, that really don't, don't sustain or breed life or hope. And oh, these are... Obviously, you can take it one step further. Like if you have a teacher in a school, you know that teacher went to college and had to pass a certain amount of um, like a praxis test to be able to hold that position. However, they work in an environment where they don't have AC or heat. So it's even looking like there's no hope for them. Why would yeah. I want to grow up and be like you and you, you're freezing and you're, <laughs> you, you know, or you're working in an environment that's 90 degrees. And the only person mm -hmm. that has AC in the summertime is the principal, you know, mm -hmm. like maybe, <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> so, you, you know, you have to think about it like that as well. Sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no, that's no. Uh, yes. You're right. So let me follow up on that and, and, and your, your uh, answer to your, the first question uh, in relationship is, is to you can't just come in and think you're going to solve a problem in a weekend or a day of service doesn't cut it. And we know that oftentimes this becomes the response of many organizations and good meaning folk, but, but most, uh, it seems to me egregiously, of the church. Uh, and so, you know, charity does not... Uh, uh, is not justice and and what a day of service doesn't in any way begin to change the realities in which people are forced to live you have said i can't remember if it was in an interview or one of your articles 
uh, that I read or one of your books. You said that you don't need to be a voice for the voiceless, just pass the mic. What would that look like for the church? What's passing the mic look like uh, for church coming in to Baltimore or good meaning people who want to be in solidarity? It looks like, um, and the, the quote is for, uh, I'm, I'm slipping on her name, um, but it's um, Dr. Saul Kabir. I'm slipping on her name, sorry. Oh, yes, it, it was in sorry. an interview, yes. Yeah, I, don't, I, don't have it, I don't have it right in front of me, but what, what it looks like to me, this is just my opinion, is instead of swooping in, looking at people and telling them what they need, swoop in, listen to them, mm -hmm. and work together at, at, at accomplishing goals. That's what it looks like to me. Um, too many times, like I've even, I've saw this in real time. I've saw some people, um, you know, the community would, you know, we would do like a sneaker drive and somebody would pull up with a bunch of coats, you know, coats, we have coats, we have coats. Why aren't you happy jumping up and down and dancing? We giving you coats. And it's like, well, nobody asks for coats. Like we have coats for four years, you know, back. We asked for sneakers. Why are you telling me to be happy? Not saying like you're telling me to be grateful, you know, for something that I didn't ask for. And we, I mean, we do it. We do it all of the time. Um, I remember a long time ago, I, I wrote about this in a book, but, um, you know, I was having a bad day and I was headed to the post office and the guy. And for, it was a homeless guy wrapped in a blanket in front of the post office. And he was like, um, you know, he wanted something to eat. And I'm like, okay, cool. I got you. And I'm, you know, I'm walking over to the, um, to the food spot, you know, to get him some chicken. And he said, my man. And I turned around and said, what? He said, white meat only. I don't want no dark meat. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I'm like, man, he's just like, he's doing too much. And I'm about to, you know, abandon the mission and get back in my car. But then I said, you know what? Who am I? to say that this guy should eat dark meat chicken be, because he's homeless. He being homeless means you doesn't, you don't, I mean, being homeless means you, you don't get to have a preference. That's, I mean, it's not the case. He don't like, you know, like, I, I like that, you know, I hate spaghetti. You know what I'm saying? So like, if you try to feed me, you know, and I'm starving, you try to feed me spaghetti. I might eat the plate that you give it to me on before I eat the actual dish. So, um, we, uh, for the church, and I'm not, again, I'm not in the position to tell a church what to do, but what I will say is, in my opinion, we have to be better at building relationships with communities than just doing fundraisers and drives and the, all of these different things, because a lot of times we're not getting the people what they actually need. We're getting them what we think they need. And who are we to think it if we don't have real proximity to their struggles and, and, and what they go through, you know? Goodness gracious. First of all, you do have a right to say, and you've said a mouthful to the heart of uh, the issue here. Uh, thanks for that. And the church needs to hear it. And it is about proximity. And it is about not simply dehumanizing people because they're homeless and and and, and it's as if they don't have their own choices and, and their own preferences. I'm going to leave you... Uh, Get us to leave out with this. Uh, get you out of here with this. You have a book. It's uh, a word from Forgotten America, Black America. Thanks for that book. <laughs> uh, uh, what's what's the word that you'd like to leave the church with 
from forgotten black Baltimore? I would say that biggest difference between people who are forgotten and people who are not is connections. Mm. Poor people, especially black, don't have connections. And that is why things are the way they are. There's no guy to say, hey, you know, I, I know your nephew's getting in trouble. I own a plumbing school. Let me train him up and get him mm. a, a skill so that he can be productive. Or, you know, your daughter's out of line. However, I, I can put her in, in this program that can help her, you know, learn how to work in media. And then I can also call my friend who's a producer at ABC and get her a job. Like, mm. We don't have those kinds of it's connections. Right. You know, most of us are first, you know, like I'm people talk about first generation college. I'm first generation high school. So, you know, like it's any and everything that I was I was blessed and fortunate enough to accomplish came off of a lot of luck, a lot of patience, a lot of setbacks and a lot of how do you how do you do this? How do you fill this out? How do you make this happen? And that's and that's just what it is. So if you really, really, really want to help. And, and it's on your heart to 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 do something that is connecting and, and transforming it for another person. Then be a, be a connection because a lot of us don't have them. That's a word, and <laughs> and it is in so many ways. D. Watkins, I sincerely thank you for the integrity of your work, for your witness for the hope that you bring to others who look like you and for this priestly and prophetic word that the church must hear if indeed the church is going to live into its claim to be church. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you for your time and your voice. Thank you.